some of you uh, really observant ones may have noticed that I've been walking with a limp. Um, I, for some reason this week, uh, suddenly I, my knee started to, to swell up. Um, took to ask the doctor, and um, there's no, no apparent knee or injury. <laughs> uh, it's not gout, thankfully. I can continue to eat meat. Uh, so, but yeah, my knee continues to swell and it's pretty painful to walk. And so that's why I'm here on a, with, on a cane and I decided to start sitting, see, I decided to sit down for, to preach this morning service. Hope you don't mind. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, in the old Testament, they would sit down to teach. So it's kind of neat. I can be a little more, more biblical this way. Uh, but would appreciate your prayers for me <laughs> as, uh, that, uh, the, well, first of all, that I would trust in God, and then secondly, that uh, that the doctors that I see in the uh, would be able to ascertain what is the cause of, of my knee swelling, and that I would be able to walk again. Uh, pray for healing. Uh, anybody have the gift of healing? No, no. Okay, no. Come on. All right. Nobody have that gift. All right. Oh, we're not that kind of church. Right. <laughs> Anyways, I'm so thankful this morning. Uh, welcome again to our pastor Ray, his wife Kelly, and. Uh, and as uh, they get to join us for the first Sunday, uh, their first Sunday. And just a reminder again to all of you, we're having an installation service for them uh, after the second service today. It'll be a short little service, about 15 minutes, if you can stick around for that. Uh, if you want to stick around for cake, it takes a little longer, so uh, st- stick around for cake if you like. Okay, uh, take your Bibles and please turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40. We return to our the book that we began, I believe, last year. We started last year, went about a year through it, and then we decided to take a break, took a half-year break through Titus, and now we want to come back to chapter 40, uh, where we pick up uh, uh, from where we last had left off. Isaiah chapter 40. If you, hopefully you found your Bibles. It's, it's a kind of hard book to find. Uh, well, all the, all the major prophets are. Thankfully, it's a pretty long book, so you find, flip through the books, your Old Testament, you usually find Psalms. It's after the Psalms. You'll probably hit Jeremiah. It's before Jeremiah, and that's where it's somewhere in between there. I have Psalms, then Isaiah, Jeremiah around there. It's kind of just uh, little things that help me to find the books when I need to flip through my Bible. <laughs> you know, where is that book? And we're all kind of so used to trying to use our phones, right? We don't even look at where the books are in between the Bible. We just kind of, Isaiah, click, you know. Let's you do that. Uh, I think with the, the art of looking at a Bible is probably going to be lost within a generation or two, at least in the book form. Isaiah chapter 40, when I read, for, read God's word, and then I'll read all 11 verses that we'll look at this morning. Because uh, it's a short passage. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flowers of the the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Let's pray. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that we can come to your word. Thank you for this, this great prophet Isaiah and this, the, the vision that he has recorded for us. Thank you, Lord, we get to see Christ in the Old Testament clearly in this book. Thank you, Lord, for the promises that you have made within this book that stand forever. Promises that not only were encouraging to your people Israel in the days of captivity, but it is an encouraging word for all of your people throughout history and throughout time and for us today. And we who, in a sense, dwell in, have, uh, we who dwell in this world and under the curse of sin, Lord, we look again to your words and we look to your word for comfort. We look to your word for hope. We look to your word for the promise of new life with you. Lord, we pray that as we study this, these 11 verses of the beginning of chapter 40, may you prepare our hearts to study this year of Christ and the promises of Christ that are found within this book. Help us to see and understand that all of your scriptures point to Jesus and his coming. Help us to be strengthened in our faith, that we grow in a greater trust in you and in your word, that we'd also grow in our awe of you, to realize how wonderful and amazing God you are, that you could orchestrate all of history to bring about the accomplishment of your will in your perfect timing, and that, Lord, we would grow in our love for you. We want to live our lives for your glory, for you have sent, given your son to give up his life for our sake. Thank you again for this time and pray you be glorified now. Be your teacher, we pray. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us into your truths. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look around the world or look around even in the people that are in your world, your lives, your daily lives, or if you even just look around at the people next to you sitting in front or back or across from you, you will find hurting people. You find people hurting from illness, from relational problems, uh, from school difficulties, identity issues, from relational problems, uh, from physical exhaustion, financial struggles, loneliness, maybe psychological troubles even. And of course, there are those who hurting from death, their own impending, or of their loved ones of recent. You don't have to look far to find hurting people in our world, right? In fact, I would guess some of you are hurting in different ways right now. And if you trace uh, hurt, the pains that we feel, that we sorrow over, trace them back to its source, you and I know, as believers in Christ, who, understand, who have the word of God, we understand why people hurt, right? People hurt because the word of God tells us that this world is under the curse of sin. This is something we've, uh, is our, part of our biblical worldview, Everything in this world is tainted by sin's curse. And, and we all feel its effect in our lives in different ways. And it affects us and in, in manifests in these difficulties and these trials, the various trials that we face. And those trials cause us pains. And no matter the problem, no matter the circumstance or the cause of hurt, People are always looking for comfort. There's no one who generally doesn't want comfort when they're hurting. When they tell people about their pains, 
It's not, sometimes they want a solution. They, want, they would like the pain to end. But oftentimes, they just want someone to comfort them. They, <laughs> um, you know, I see it in my children. Um, they fall down. They're kind of learning to walk, especially the younger ones. They're walking. They inevitably fall down and bonk their heads or skin their, bend their fingers. And immediately they cry. And, you know, they all immediately go and they look for comfort. You know from who, right? Yeah, my, Cindy, my wife, my mom. <laughs> they immediately go to her. I pick them up. They just keep crying, crying louder. And then I give them to mom. And like, it's all good. It's all good. Comfort. People want to be comforted. They need to know that someone cares for them. They need to know that there is hope. They need to know that there is someone that uh, they can turn to for comfort, for, to know that things could be okay because, they're, because of that being with that person. If we go back to Genesis 3, we learn there that when Adam and Eve sinned, it did not only affect the two of them, it, but it affected all of creation. The animals and land are cursed. Our bodies are cursed. Our, our work is cursed. Our relationships are cursed. Everything and everyone is tainted by sin, and, and thus we experience the painful effects of it in this life. But God did not leave man without comfort, did he? If we look, remember Genesis 3. We studied that some 10 years ago. Even in the pronouncement of the curse of sin, he, he promised what? He promised the salvation through the seed of Eve, right? That message of comfort to Adam and Eve that their Eve's seed would one day defeat and conquer the seed of Satan. He would stomp him on the head. That was the, is the first, um, first, really the first gospel message, the good news in its seed form. And that message of comfort is a thread that if we would trace throughout the Bible, we'd find over and over there would be sin. We'd see sin and how it affects mankind, but we'd ever and over, we'd see God coming in with comfort, with promises. And oftentimes, these promises would all be pointed to a coming king, a Messiah, a prophet, a priest, a king, an ultimate one who would bring about peace in their lives. That message of comfort is threaded through Isaiah 40 here. It is proclaimed loudly in these 11 verses. And when we look at these 11 verses, we find ourselves reading words that are, if you think about it, they're over 2,500 years old. I just uh, was watching, uh, saw something on the internet where they discovered in Israel and Jerusalem some pottery that confirmed that basically, that basically was confirmation that, yes, the Babylonians did conquer Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and they did burn everything to the ground. That's amazing. This word is even older than the pottery that they found. It's all shattered and crumbled. You kind of, so you guys saw the news? No? Just me? Anyways. This word, though, is preserved for us perfectly. And it's for us because pottery, broken pottery, that doesn't bring us no comfort. Confirmation, this is what brings us comfort, this word of God. This message is still a message for comfort for us today. If you're hurting today, you know people that are hurting, comfort is found in this text. There's a message of comfort here. It's not just for Israel, but it's for all who hurt. As when we return to our series in Isaiah, uh, it's helpful for us to do a review. In fact, I'll probably spend quite a bit of time on review. In fact, uh, I think preparing for this sermon, I probably did more reviewing Isaiah than actually studying these 11 verses. Because it is there is so much that has taken place in chapters 1 through 39. Uh, if we remember, the historical setting, first and foremost, when was this written? What occasion that it was, uh, the context in history that this book was written? It was, uh, takes place... Uh, during a 60-year period, uh, during the reigns of the southern kingdom, of southern kingdom kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, and although during those days, they, uh, the nation prospered under their king's rule, uh, just like many nations, uh, when they prosper, they, they turn away from their God. 
They turn away from God. They, they turn and look to themselves. They look to other gods. That's what those Israel did. They started to worship idols. They started to worship the gods of the surrounding nations. They created uh, place altars on the high places where they could offer up uh, their offerings to the different gods. And but yet, and not only that, but Israel and Judah, instead of putting their trust in God, put their trust in political and military alliances with the surrounding nations. And they would, and because they were a little nation, they would always have to kind of take, try to side with the different major nations around them, whether it would be Egypt or Assyria, uh, sometimes, or even later on, Babylon. Their idolatry, though, would lead to the judgment of God. It would lead to uh, God's judgment upon and pronouncement of judgment that we looked at in 1 through 39. And over and over again, we saw God's judgment. And God is fair because God promised not only judgment for the nations who believed and worshipped other gods and who treated his, his nation, his chosen nation, wrongly. But God also promised judgment upon both the northern and southern kingdoms. In God, and at the very end of uh, chapter uh, 39, we see that God would even judge, promise because of Israel's, the southern kingdom's sin, God promised that they would be taken into captivity in Babylon. During this period, uh, the dominant empire was the Assyrian Empire. And when you look at, think about the Assyrians' empire and their rule as with, with regard to Israel's history, there are two dates that stand out. You, have to, you have just have to know these dates. In 722 B.C., that's when the Assyrians came and they conquered the northern kingdom. That's what we often call the northern kingdom Israel. Remember the kingdom divided into the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. And, and uh, the Assyrian king took the, the northern kingdom into captivity. And so Israel as a nation was no more. Only the southern kingdom Judah remained. But in 701 BC, which we found, which we see as a major historical event that basically provides a context for the bulk of, of the latter part of, of Isaiah 1 through 39, is that the Assyrians actually come and try to conquer the southern kingdom. In fact, they practically do. They conquer all the fortified cities throughout Judah except for Jerusalem. But God, as you remember the story in 36 through 37, how he miraculously delivered Israel and Judah and King Hezekiah from the hands of Sennacherib. Yet, while delivered from the hands of Sennacherib, Hezekiah foolishly uh, uh, turns his attention again to the nations and he shows his store, his, the temple and the storehouse, his riches, his treasury to uh, the Babylonian um, uh, envoy. And so, as a result of that, God promises him that they would be taken into captivity to Babylon. And so that's kind of, those are the historical setting that leads us into chapters 1 through chapter 40 and on. If we look at the theme of Isaiah as a whole, the overall theme is the theme of salvation, of deliverance. It is, uh, this word salvation appears some 26 times in Isaiah alone. And that's significant because the word salvation only appears seven other times in the rest of the prophets, totally, in combined. So this book is about salvation. It's about deliverance, about restoration. Isaiah's name, is, the author's name means the Lord is salvation. And it's often said that this book is like a mini Bible. It's, kind of, it's really helpful when we're in seminary. We take our uh, kind of our uh, ordination practicum class. We're to memorize every outline of the Bible. So these guys are straight out of seminary, especially Pastor Ray. So ask him any outline of the Bible. He'll probably give it to you like that. It'd be really cool. Okay, I'm putting you on the spot, but that's all right. I wouldn't know all the answers either, but I used to, okay? And you would know all the Isaiahs. Ask them about Isaiah, and you say, oh, that's easy. It's divided in two parts. The first 39 chapters are similar to the 39 books of the Old Testament, reminding us of our need for salvation, a need for a Savior. The second 27 chapters of Isaiah, 40 through 66, like the 27 chapters of the New Testament, remind us of or teach us of God's provision for salvation. They prophesy of the coming of this Messiah, this Christ, this suffering servant that's going to come, who's going to save us. The central figure in all of Isaiah, then, is the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, the Christ. Jesus, the Christ, is who is prophesied in all of this book. 
if you didn't know, uh, I think I've said it once before, Isaiah, it's kind of fun, trivial fact, Isaiah is the most quoted Old Testament prophet in all of the New Testament. No other Old Testament prophet is quoted more than he is. It's kind of cool. Well, if we look at the latter half of the book, we want to kind of give you a little uh, outline of where we're going to head. The tone of the prophecies begin to change. It changes from one of judgment to one of deliverance, restoration. And this, the structure can be broken down into three identical sections of nine chapters each. And 40 to 48, 49 to 57, and 58 to 66. And we find in chapters 40 to 48 about the deli- primarily focused on the deliverance from Babylon. It's written to those who will be taken captive in Babylon about 100 or 125, 150 years later, and for their, how they will be delivered. 49 to 57 describe primarily the rejection of the suffering servant, the one through whom the deliverance and salvation of the people of Israel will come through. And, it's, and then 58 through 66, where we're, uh, the, the chapters describe primarily the restoration of Israel and the world that, w- that is coming through by the hands of the Messiah. What's kind of interestingly, at the end of each of these uh, first two sections, uh, if you look at the last verse of chapter 48, the last verse of chapter 57, you'll find the same phrase mentioned each time. And that is that there is no peace for the wicked. No peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Even as this whole section of 40 to 66 describes the, the deliverance promised through the Messiah, there's this constant, there's a, there's, a, uh, there's this reminder throughout that for those who do not trust in the Messiah, those who do not receive the suffering servant, those who continue to live wickedly before him, before God, will find no rest. So the opposite is true. Rest is only found in those who turn to the Lord for his righteousness. Rest is only found for those who bend the knee, who bow the head to the suffering servant, the Messiah. Jesus Christ. And so we then come to the 11 verses of this, of this chapter. These 11 verses serve like a prologue to the whole uh, 27 books, uh, the 27 chapters that we're, we're going to come to. And so as an outline, we find four prophecies that bring comfort to those under the judgment of God. Four prophecies that bring comfort to those under the judgment of God. Four promises, if you will, even. So we'll look at these, and we'll look at them pretty quickly. You know, we've read them. I think they're straightforward. You can, especially if you know your New Testament, you can say, wow, that, I, I see how that's fulfilled. I, I know where that is found. That's uh, completely true. And so let's take a look. First prophecy is found in verses 1 to 2, and that is the prophecy of the comfort of God. The comfort of God. Verse 1 and 2 say, comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. That she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The word comfort is a key word here uh, throughout Isaiah 40 to 66. It appears 15 times in all these chapters. When I read this, comfort, oh, comfort my people. At first, you kind of read it as, you, you might read it as like, oh, this is a promise. He says, comfort, comfort my people. Here, comfort. I'm giving you comfort. But these are actually, these words are actually a command. They're an imperative in the Hebrew. So there is a command here that God gives to someone, a group of people actually, to comfort his people. In fact, he repeats it for emphasis, comfort, I say again, comfort my people, says your God. Who is the ones that are going to call to comfort God's people? Well, it is the prophets of God. It is those who also share the same God who also have bring this message. The whole 11 verses speak, have an l- emphasis on speaking. There are a lot of mention referring to voices, calling out, crying out. You can't miss it all as the speak kindly. These are the responsibilities, the jobs of, of the prophets of God. Those who have God's message are to comfort God's people. These are a, a word of comfort. These are, this is a command to every preacher, every teacher of this word that we come across in this passage. We are to deliver these messages to God's people for comfort. And what God says that he wants, he wants us to do is that we are to bring and bring comfort to God's people by speaking his word. God offers comfort to his people, Israel here particularly. 
And if you look at this latter half of Isaiah, it is actually written from the perspective that the Babylonian captivity has taken place. All of chapter 1 through 39 take place before the Babylonian captivity. In fact, it ends around 701 B.C. historically. The Babylonian captivity won't take place until 586 B.C. So it's going to be a 100-year period, 100 or so year period before that arrives. And then there's a 70-year period in captivity. But this, all the words as we'll, as we'll, uh, as we'll unpack uh, un, uh, 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 these chapters in the weeks ahead, we're going to find that uh, this book is written to a people as if they were actually in captivity. It's written for those who are living in the future. And so writing to Israel in captivity, God consoles them. God comforts them. He reminds them, first and foremost, that he is your God. He's their God. That he's a God who has a covenant relationship with them. Remember, the part of that covenant relationship is, is bound up in the various promises that God made to the forefathers, to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, and to Jacob. But there's also the Mosaic Covenant, if you remember. Mosaic Covenant. In particular, in Deuteronomy 28. There, God promised uh, blessings if Israel would obey. But God also promises curses if they would disobey. And he would curse them and even cast them out of the promised land if they continued in their disobedience and their continued worship of other gods. But he reminds them here as their God that he is their God. And if he's their God, he's for them. He's not against them. He's speaking kindly to Jerusalem. Her captivity was the end result of a war with Babylon. And so her warfare, therefore, really the consequences of her warfare, are going to come to an end. She would be set free from her captivity, from her slavery. We know that the ultimate cause of her captivity was not Babylon, but because of their own sin, because they worshiped other gods. But we see here, too, in verse 2, that God is the one who has removed her iniquity from her. God's going to remove her sins. Ultimately, that is not only because of the discipline, through the discipline, but ultimately it's because of Jesus Christ that will die for their sins. God is going to forgive them, save them, and bring them back to the land because of his loyal covenant love with his people. And this can be an encouraging principle for us today, I believe. God certainly will discipline us for our sins. But if you belong to him, you never have to fear that God's against you. God's for you. God's for you. Then he's going to deliver you. He's going to look out for you. He will restore you. You can be sure that it's not because of your sins that he's going to keep punishing you. He will forgive you of your sins. God will remove your iniquity. Restore you to himself. That's why because of his love for you, his covenant love for you. The deliverance of Israel from captivity would be simply a near fulfillment of something that would of a some event that would take place in the far future, a greater fulfillment. That greater fulfillment we find in the second prophecy that brings comfort in verse three to five. And as the comfort or the coming of our God, the coming of our God, verse three to five. Read verse three to five. There it says, A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verses 3 to 4 are basically a prophetic call to the people of God to prepare the way for the coming of their God. Uh, like a herald that announces the arrival of a king, there's a, going to be a, a voice, a voice that calls, that calls out to Israel, that calls out to the people of God to clear the way, make way for the Lord, prepare, he's coming, so get ready, make smooth the highway, make the road, get rid of all the rubble, prepare the way, there, there's things in the, that are preventing him from coming, get rid of those things, make it a smooth road, fill in the potholes, and make way for God. These phrases basically are picture uh, engineers, if you will, workmen who would make the roads, make the, the ways of, for, God to, uh, uh, for God to come smooth as possible. So as if, uh, picturing as if a king, if he were going to travel, he would travel and arrive there swiftly. The hyperbole is used in verse 4 
to describe how the, the radical changes that must be done to prepare for the arrival of the king. The valleys are going to be lifted up. Mountains and hills are going to be made low. Rough things are going to be made like a plain. Rugged terrain is going to be made like a broad, smooth valley. These are not just uh, geographical changes or uh, topographical changes that are going to take place. These are actually a, a calling to mankind to prepare their, their hearts for the coming of God. In the case of Israel, the preparation that is needed is not a physical change, but a spiritual change. There's a spiritual change that must take place. There needs to be repentance from sin for them to, for, to prepare the way for God's coming. Verse 5 then describes this coming of God. That they would see the glory of the Lord. It would be revealed. And it says all flesh will see it together. And this will happen because God has spoken it. If you know your New Testament, then you know that these verses are fulfilled in in John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, right? In all four Gospels, in Matthew 3, 3, and Mark 1, verse 3, Luke 3, John 1, Every gospel author records that John's ministry of calling Israel to repentance and baptizing them for repentance of sins in the, in the Jordan River was the fulfillment of this prophecy found here in verses four and five, in verse 3 and 4. And as a result, if you know, of, uh, subsequently or after uh, John's ministry, Jesus appeared. The glory of the Lord was revealed. That glory of the Lord, of course, is Jesus Christ. We see that uh, uh, referred to in John 1.14. And the word, remember the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The word, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The only one from the Father, unique son of God from the Father, full of grace and truth. The people in, in that day saw the glory of the Lord who came after John the Baptist. But yet, like almost all messianic prophecies of his coming, there is often a partial fulfillment as well as, uh, of his, in, that is found in his first coming, and then as well as an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus' second coming. We know this only through progressive revelation. Because those of us in the new, who have the New Testament, we can see that this is revealed later on. Though it's alluded to in the Old Testament in different ways. But it's primarily revealed for us as in the New Testament. And this passage is not, is not an exception. Here in this passage, verse 3 through 4, we also see uh, a near and a far fulfillment. Because according to Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, there will be an, a messenger like Eli, an, an, Eli, an Elijah-like messenger that will go before the Lord to prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord. But it describes it as the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Then actually, there's this there's this uh, there's this fearful day of the Lord judgment that is to take place. But you remember when Jesus came in His first coming, He did not come to judge the world. He came to what? To save the world. That's right. But he will come again in that great and terrible day of the Lord to judge the world as well as to save completely those who are his. Nevertheless, the coming of our God here is a source of comfort to those who trust in him, right? Yes, he's going to come and judge sin. But that is even that... And his coming is going to be a source of comfort because he's coming. Our Lord is coming. Our Savior is God. Our God is coming. And we're going to see him. And, says, and in fact, this verse is not compl- these verses are not fulfilled because not all flesh have seen the Lord yet. All of Jerusalem and the surrounding nations, uh, Jerusalem might have seen him, but not the rest of the world. One day, all flesh will see his glory together when he returns. Jesus came to save us from the penalty and the power of our sins by dying on the cross. And one day when he comes again, his salvation will be complete as he, as he eradicates the presence of sin on the face of, our, of the earth completely from our lives. We can look forward to that day. And that is a source of comfort for God's people. 
In verses 68, 6 through 8, we find a third prophecy, a prophecy that brings comfort to God's word, and that is the prophecy of the word of our God, the word of our God. Another, we see here another voice calls out. A voice calls, a voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? Well, here's what he used to call out. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The prophet of God here is commanded, presumably by God here, to call out. Maybe it's an angel, but it's, it's presumably God. God is telling someone, the prophet, to call out. What does he call out? He's to call out this message that emphasizes man's brevity of life. He's to tell people that all flesh, all humanity is like grass. And the loveliness that is the best of mankind among us here are like the flowers of the fields. And it's kind of funny, you think about it, if God would look upon us, if we can, in a figurative sense, he sees but simply grass and flowers. Uh, you know, I think I'm a grass, and some of you out there are flowers, you know. He sees us, and we're just basically grass and flowers, and just, you know, when you do with grass and flowers, especially if you have a nice big lawn, you just mow over it, right? Because you want it all short and uniform. You especially don't want flowers growing on your lawn. You just want to mow right over it. But, you know, wildflowers grow, right? And so that's what mankind. Mankind is like the grass, like the flower. And we don't, we don't see it too often here, uh, but we'll see it in, in, the, in, the, in the Middle East. There's often this scorching kind of hot wind that will come through. And it just comes through. And when it blows upon the grass or flowers, it withers and dies. It just fades. But we don't need even a wind to do that. We know that all grass, especially if you try to grow a nice grass garden here, uh, eventually it just dies. Just, just buy an artificial one or get a rock garden. Um, and so that's kind of a description of man's, of man's life before God, right? We're just grass and some of us are flowers. But we're all just simply things that will, that will, that will um, wither and fade with just simply a breath from the Lord. Our lives are short here. All 70, 80 years uh, is about the approximation of our lives, but that is a short life. We should really see God's sovereign power over our lives. Our lives are, are brief and fragile. And, and you know, I, I for sure, it's like the Lord wanted me to have an illustration of it this week, but my knee, in, my mysterious knee injury, and, you know, for whatever reason, I just, all of a sudden, I couldn't, it's swelling. Uh, happened on, uh, it happened the same day that Raymond came into, uh, to show up at church. In fact, uh, I just realized, uh, he's been telling me these funny things about himself. He's very random things. I love it. Uh, I really enjoy our getting to know him better. Um, but all of a sudden, just randomly, <laughs> uh, my knee started her aching, and by Wednesday, it was killing me. Uh, I could barely walk. In fact, I can, I can't walk on it too much. It's just too much pain. Uh, or, you know, I can hobble around. And so, but this, uh, the, the fragility of our lives, you know, one day you're just walking around thinking you can do everything. And then all of a sudden the next day you can just barely crawl around, you know, you're just trying to get from your bed to the bathroom without bonking your head on the floor. You know, our body's just withering and fading. Uh, I just reminded of that this week. My life on earth will soon be over, but we don't know our days. But whatever they are, God's word reminds us that we are like grass and flowers. That's what I am. That's what you are. Now you're starting to think, well, what kind of comfort is that? (laughs) That's not very comforting. In fact, it's kind of sobering, right? To know that you're just simply grass and flowers. Boy. But it's the contrast that's made here that brings comfort to us. The contrast is with God's word. The last, uh, the last part of, uh, of verse, eight, uh, verse eight. Though we are like grass that withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Here's the comforting thing. God's word stands forever. God's words are eternal like God himself. You know, God's promises will stand throughout all time. You and I can make promises, can't we? I promise I'll give you a dollar tomorrow if you see me. But I can promise that. I can guarantee that promise as much as I can guarantee that I'll be alive tomorrow. And I can't guarantee that. 
because I might not be alive tomorrow. Pray for me, seriously. I, I do think it's a blood clot. Anyways, I'm scared myself sometimes. But I could be dead this week. But God, who is eternal, God who will be there, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, God who, will, who was there in Israel's days in 586 B.C., 701 B.C., who was there in Jesus' day and, and who's here today, who will be there tomorrow and into eternity, he can guarantee, because he's the sovereign, uh, he is the all-sovereign, almighty God, and he'll be there to keep his word. And so every promise that he makes, you can stand upon. Every promise that man makes, don't be so sure. And so we can count on God's words. His promises made 100 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah are still standing when the, Babylon, when the Israelites are in captivity in Babylon. And when they read these words, four generations later, their grandparents and their parents of generation have passed away, but they still have the word of God. They still find these promises. And when they read these promises, they know that God's word is something that will stand forever because God is still God and he will fulfill his word. He will bring them back to the land exactly as he promised. And if you know our history, he does that. And this verse is especially comforting for New Testament saints as well for it is applied to the gospel, the word of the, word of the gospel by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 and 25. Where he reminds the saints there, he says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living, enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. You know, brothers and sisters, the gospel that was preached to you is not just a message that you need to get into heaven. But that message of the gospel is the message that we need every day of our lives for comfort. Whenever you are struggling, whenever you're hurting, think back to the gospel. Think back to the fact that our troubles are because of sin. Think back to the fact that when we receive Christ, we receive the greatest gift of all. Whatever you think you lack in this world, you have much more in Christ. Whatever struggle is because of your sin, you know that the, the victory over that sin is provided for through the death of Christ. Christ is all that you need. And when you, everything is falling away, when your knees fail, when your body fails, and when you're lying on your deathbed, nothing will be your treasure but Christ. And that is all you need. The gospel, you just remember the good news of Christ, the enduring word of God forever, because in that moment, none of the promises that man makes will matter. Only the promises of the word of God will matter, right? And then you hold on to that, dear saints, because... That is what stands. That is our comfort. And that's the, word, that's the comfort that we get from the word of God, the deliverance, the promised deliverance because of the Messiah, our faith in Christ. Now, lastly and finally, we look at the character of God. This final prophecy, the character of God. In verse 9 11, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. See the repetition there. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. This prophecy is directed to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that is uh, also known as Zion. The city itself is to be a bearer of good news. Somehow, this city is going to have a reason to tell good news to other people. What is this good news that they are to tell? It's mentioned there at the last, at the last end of verse 9. Here is your God. The city is going to have great news. Here's your God. You know, cities get excited when the president shows up in their town, right? They just roll out the red carpet. They say, oh, our president's here. They get the motorcades. They, he gets to go to city hall. But Jerusalem's going to have He's going to top them all. Because one day they're going to roll out the red carpet and they're going to say, here is our God. Here is your God. God will appear in Jerusalem. He will reign on the throne of David. And of course, this is a prophecy of the Messiah. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, coming to reign at his second coming. For in the millennial kingdom, in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, Jesus will sit on the throne of David in, this, in the city of Jerusalem. He will fulfill his promises to David and to his descendants to have a throne that is eternal, where he will rule and reign. And, to, and when, we see, when we learn about that reign, the characteristics of that reign are revealed in verses 10 and 11. First of all, in verse 10, he is a sovereign. 
He is sovereign God. He is, we, we look at verse uh, 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. This is uh, a lot of times we, in the NAS, it says, behold, the Lord God will come. And sometimes we just see the Lord God. We see it everywhere. And a lot of times we just presume the traditional Hebrew phrase for that is uh, Yahweh Elohim. But here it's actually, the different word is used. You can, can tell a little bit by the, the way the words are uh, capitalized or not capitalized. It's actually the word Adonai, Adonai, Yahweh, Adonai. So this idea of master, Lord, Yahweh. And I like the NIV's translation. It translates as sovereign Lord. It's the sovereign Lord. The one who's in, who has every right to rule. He is ruling with power and might. He comes with might. His arm is also with him. That is symbolic of his strength and ability. By his arm, he can accomplish things. He, he brings both reward and recompense for his different subjects. He's going to distribute to people exactly what they deserve as appropriate. And no one can oppose him, his power. He is sovereign. Secondly, we learn that he is a shepherd in verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Sometimes we think about the sovereign Lord our God. We think of this mighty king, and we might think of fear, being fearful. And there, certainly there is a respectful fear of our God. But what is amazing about our Lord God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is that he's also a, a loving shepherd. He's a loving shepherd. He will tenderly care for his flock. Gathers them when they are lost. Carries them when they are weak. He gently leads them who are lost. Who are helpless. And when Jesus came the first time, he identified himself. He used several I am statements. If you remember in John. One of the I am statements in John 10, 11. What does he say of himself? He says, I am the good shepherd. That's right. Good shepherd. Elsewhere, Hebrews 13, 20, calls him the great shepherd. Shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4, calls him the chief shepherd. Jesus Christ will come again as sovereign Lord, but also as a loving shepherd. It is he who is our God. It is he in whom we can find comfort because he is coming again. And so these four brief prophecies that we find here in verse 111 are a means of comfort for the people of God. We just remind, as we summarize, our comfort is found, the people of God can, be, can find comfort in our God first and foremost. We can find comfort though, not only in the fact that he is our God, but he is also coming. Not only did he come the first time, but he will come again. And one day all flesh will see his glory. And thirdly, we can find comfort in the word of God, the promises that God has made particularly with regards to our deliverance, to our salvation, to all that, all the, and for us who hurt, who sorrow, who weep, one day when Christ comes again, all our sorrows will, and sadness will be turned into uh, joy. And lastly, we can find comfort in the character of our God, knowing who he is, that he is a, not only sovereign and in control of all things, but he is a God who is also going to be a, a loving shepherd caring for us. For the nation of Israel who received these promises and the promise they're going to find in 40 to 48 and in the, in the chapters ahead, the promises of their immediate temporal deliverance from Babylon. You can find because it it's going to be really neat once we get to, I can't wait to get to the prophecy about Cyrus. That's really cool. Uh, just, just all these amazing confirm, uh, evidences of God's power. The immediate temporal, that's all was simply a foretaste of the ultimate eternal deliverance through the Son of God. That was for Israel before the cross, on that side of the cross. But as believers today on this side of the cross, we can look back, and the great joy is not looking for temporal deliverance from our earthly pains and sorrows. But our great joy and our great comfort is looking at the ultimate eternal deliverance that was accomplished for us on the cross, even as we remembered through communion today, that the Lord Jesus Christ is our comfort He is the key to finding comfort in the midst of hurt. He is our sovereign Lord and shepherd. And you can trust him to care for you. You can look to him for hope. And especially if you're here and you're hurting 
and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you can turn to him today in faith, that you would acknowledge your sin before the Lord, that you are a sinner who is under the judgment of God. But God has promised that whoever believes in his son will not perish but have eternal life. If you understand, you believe upon Christ for his death on the cross for your sins, his resurrection from the grave for your justification, for your eternal life. If you believe in Christ, trust in Christ, you can have that hope. You can find comfort. You can find peace and rest today in Christ. For God's word is eternal and secure. These are promises that we're offered. So don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these promises and thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word stands forever. And these promises made 2,500 years ago to Israel are promises that still resound today. Lord, I pray that as we've spoken your word, that the message of comfort would reach the ears of your people, that they would hold on to these prophecies and that they would find comfort in them no matter what pains, no matter what sorrows, no matter what hurts they are going through. Will Lord be their portion? Show them, Lord, that all they need, all their, their longing for comfort is found in, as they turn to you in trust. Lord, tell us, guard us from turning to other things for peace or comfort. Help us to learn to turn only to you. We are simply grass and flowers. But you are sovereign Lord and loving shepherd to our souls. We hold on to you, Lord. We hold on to your word. Until you come again, we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.